Hello, I'm Richard Allenson, unwrapping a Christmas gift for you once again with the second of two Magnum Opus podcasts. It's the story of what many regard as the greatest Christmas album ever. Last time we heard how Phil Spector gathered his artists and musicians in Los Angeles' Gold Star Studios in the summer of 1963, with the aim of creating a seasonal album, and as he himself put it on the sleeve notes, to give it the sound of the American music of today. Joining me again to show just how he did that, drummer Hal Blaine and guitarist Carol Kay from session musicians The Wrecking Crew, plus Spectre's biographer Mick Brown, and first, fellow record producer Steve Levine. So many of the production tricks that are available to a producer today owe their DNA to Phil Spector. Things like reverb, delay, compression. These were all techniques that Phil Spector used on those early recordings. And honestly, so many records today feature those sounds. For me as a record producer, I can clearly hear how Mark Ronson and the late Amy Winehouse used so many of those tricks and techniques on their groundbreaking and multi-award winning album, Back to Black in 2006. Those tricks really, really are layered across the Phil Spector wall of sound. wonderful Darlene Love with Marshmallow World, originally a hit for Bing Crosby in 1951 and just one of the 13 tracks on A Christmas Gift For You. When the album was originally released in 1963, under the title in smaller letters was the subtitle From Philly's Records, although that changed later to From Phil Spector. Mick Brown. Spector saw this very much as his record and as his declaration to the world of his genius. While, of course, all the Phyllis records had had in, in very small letters underneath produced by Phil Spector, in bringing together all of his artists in, in, in one fell swoop under the auspices of a Christmas album, it was a way for Spector to also declare to the world, they're mine, this is my sound, these are my people. You've got to remember, at this point, nobody knew who record producers were. Nobody knew who these guys were in the, in the recording studio with the headphones on actually bringing these sounds together. I mean, everybody knew who the pop stars were, but nobody knew about production. Producers weren't personalities. And this is something very important that Phil Spector did, I think, you know. I mean, he, he really put the producer on the map and the producer as a fundamentally important part of the pop music making process. And the Christmas album was part of that. But Phil Spector wasn't just a controlling personality. He was also an innovator. Wrecking Crew guitarist, Carol Kay. Phil was the guy that really innovated a lot of stuff. He's the first one that used the earphones when we sat in the studios and, and used the earphones. He, he'd dump his, his echo in there and drove us a little nuts. But, but he's the first one to do that. He's the first one to suggest more mics on the drums and to put more mutes on the drums. And so we learned how to mute more just being around him, you know, because he wanted those big baffles too, you know. But then it's so funny because we all played so loud anyway, it all leaked into the mics anyway, you know, so.
Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans, with Bobby Sheen on lead vocals for The Bells of St. Mary, originally made famous by Bing Crosby in the 1945 film of the same name. While Phil Spector and his engineer Larry Levine were busy innovating in the Gold Star Studios in 1963, their task was made that much easier by the man they had behind the drum kit, Hal Blaine. You know, the drummer's supposed to have the time in his head. And some did and some didn't. And I was lucky that I sort of had a built-in metronome so that if they, in those days when they used a razor blade to cut from one piece of tape to another and put two takes together or three or four, they usually matched. And that is a major part of the fact that studio time was very expensive and if you couldn't do it quickly, it cost an awful lot of money. Today, with Pro Tools and all the new modern conveniences in certain studios, and most of them have closed. There are no more, there's no more Capitol Records. Columbia, RCA, Warner Brothers, they've all closed their studios because there's just, it's just too expensive. It's something like $3,000 an hour to go in and record. They've all stopped because every musician has started has, has built his own little studio in his garage. Well, that certainly wasn't the case in 1963, although Gold Star Studios was itself not much bigger than the average garage. Mind you, what they lacked in space and technology, Phil Spector and his team made up for with innovation and sheer hard work. Carol Kay. Phil got his ideas along with Larry Levine, too. Larry was a super engineer, and so Larry said, well, how about if I do this, you know? And then those two worked hand in glove in the studio, see, and they were bouncing tracks around, which was new then, you know. Phil was not hard to work for back then. He was a young genius type of guy, you know. He, he hadn't grown up yet, see. So here, here he was getting rich and famous and all this stuff with all these beautiful hits, you know. But it was a long three hours on, on one tune. And we're talking about horn players, you know, they, they would turn blue in their lips, man. I mean, there was so much going on with the plane. And they would give their all, too. So it's kind of hard on, I mean, physically to keep going like that. And he'd forget about the bathroom breaks. When I was pregnant, I said, Phil, I got to go to the bathroom. And he said, oh, okay, well, let's take a break. Just don't move the mics, guys. And the guys would say, thank you, Carol. Thank you for the break. <laughs> We would have to yell sometimes, Phil, we've got to go to the bathroom, please. We've been sitting here four hours. You know, and he'd be, just one more, just one more. And then when, when he'd say, okay, take the break, but do not touch the mics. I mean, we looked like a bunch of ballet dancers trying to turn our bodies hither and yon to get around the microphones and, the, and all of the, the tripods and everything that was in there. The Wrecking Crew's Hal Blaine and Carol Kay on the laborious process of recording Tomorrow's Sound Today, as the slogan went. And Phil Spector also adhered to another adage, Hal Blaine once more. Phil was a stickler for live. He always wore that uh, little button on his vest that said, back to mono, after, you know, hi-fi came in and stereo came in. He believed in what they called monophonic, and that was everybody playing live, singers singing live, and everyone feeling what everyone else was doing. And when we made records in those days, we went for a feel. So when we went in to do a Christmas album, it was kind of natural that we were doing that. The stuff that we did 
is still going today. We went in to make records that felt good, and if they felt good, we had a, a great record. So it was an amazing, it really was an amazing time. I saw Mummy Kissing Santa Claus, originally number one in America in 1952 for a then 13-year-old Jimmy Boyd. For most of us, I think it's safe to say it's the Ronettes version we know and love. I'm Richard Allenson with an appreciation of A Christmas Gift For You, the iconic collection of Christmas songs produced in Los Angeles Gold Star Studios in 1963. While you could argue this album saw the wall of sound enjoying its finest hour, in many ways, it was merely a springboard to greater success for the musicians involved. The Wrecking Crew given a platform to impress by producer Phil Spector. I, I think what he did was he built up this extraordinary esprit de corps. And, you know, all of these musicians were very busy session musicians in their own right, working on other pop music sessions, and also working on Frank Sinatra sessions and Nat King Cole sessions and jazz sessions. You know, they were seasoned professionals. but. It was working with Spectre that they, I think, really begin to define themselves as a group and that other producers around Los Angeles begin to see them as a group. Brian Wilson being a notable example. So it's, it's coming out of their sessions for Spectre that Brian Wilson says, well, I want these guys on my records. And so they end up playing on the later Beach Boys records and then all on Pet Sounds, of course, and then on pretty much every pop record that's being made in Los Angeles you know, around that period, 64, 65, 66. It's through their work with Spectre, I think, that this sense of solidarity, like a football team functioning at the absolute peak of its performance. They all know each other, they all understand each other, and suddenly they're not individuals anymore, they're a unit, and other people begin to see them as a unit. And I think if you talk to any of those guys, they'll look back and say, that was thanks to Phil Spector that our careers were built in that way. Well, as far as Phil Spector is concerned, we all had a major, major love affair with Phil. We were all, you know, dear friends for a long time. We all considered him a genius, a little bit cuckoo, as we would say. Phil had his way of working, and he took all the credit for it. He paid us well. And that's what we were in the studio for. Instead of having to work in a nightclub till 2 o'clock in the morning, we were in the studio till 2 o'clock in the morning, making big money. We were making maybe $100 a week, working six nights, five, six hours a night. When we started working in the studios, we were making $1,000 a day. It was just incredible, unbelievable. And so, you know, anytime Phil called, we were happy to be there. One original on a Christmas gift for you, 
Phil Spector co-writing Christmas Baby Please Come Home with his favourite collaborators, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich. Now, if you don't recognise the track from the album, then maybe you remember it from the opening credits of the 1984 hit film Gremlins, Darlene Love on top form. While the Wrecking Crew enhanced their professional reputation via their work with Phil Spector, one other participant in the 1963 sessions was merely a bystander, although he could have contributed, according to Phil's biographer, Mick Brown. There was no greater Phil Spector fan than Brian Wilson. It's well known that uh, Wilson plays Be My Baby every morning and, uh, and has been playing Be My Baby every morning since the day it was released in 1963. He was a fanatic about the Spectre sound and uh, rather shy, rather self-effacing, would often sort of uh, pop by into Gold Star and kind of just stand there in awe watching what Phil Spector was doing. And in fact, Wilson might have played on the Christmas album. Phil invited him to sit down and play piano on the, on the album. And the story is that Brian was so disconcerted by this and so discombobulated and so much in awe of Spectre that he didn't actually do that. I think for Wilson, Spectre was a figure of awe, adulation, but also in some curious way, terror. I interviewed uh, Brian Wilson and uh, I asked him about Phil Spector. And it was interesting that one of the first words that he used to describe him was scary. So he, he kind of idolized Phil Spector, but at the same time was scared of him. Very strange psychology going on there. Strange indeed. Now with the Gold Star sessions complete, a shrewd operator like Phil Spector was aiming to make a mint from his Christmas album, much as he may have been inspired by a feeling of seasonal cheer and goodwill to all men. In the autumn of 1963, the Ronettes' Be My Baby had reached number two in the American singles chart, so no doubt the tycoon of teen hoped for more of the same over the holiday season from what was, in effect, one of the very first concept albums. Sadly for Spectre, it wasn't to be, and the producer felt the disappointment keenly, as Mick Brown explains. That was a very, very bitter blow for Spectre. What actually happened, of course, was that the, uh, the album was cut in the summer of 63 with a view to being released at just before Christmas 1963. And then this terrible tragedy occurs where, in November, John Kennedy is assassinated. And nobody in America is very much in the mood to celebrate Christmas. And I think this really did completely take the wind out of Phil Spector's sails at that point. He was devastated. I mean, not only by the death of the record, of course, but also by the death of John Kennedy, you know, whom he idolized, I think it's right to say. You know, Spector was a sort of Democrat and for uh, that point had a very radical uh, view of politics and a very radical view of the kind of social issues that Kennedy would have been uh, championing. So suddenly this wonderful sleek machine rolling on to apparently garner huge riches over the Christmas season is derailed, you know, with two or three shots ringing out in Dallas. November 1963, Kennedy dies, the record dies with it. And Spectre effectively writes it off, remarkably in a way, writes it off. I mean, he could well have released it in 1964 or 1965 or 1966 or, or any year thereafter. But for one reason or another, he doesn't do this. And the record sort of languishes in the vaults and is really a sort of forgotten artifact until the early 70s when Phil comes to London to work with the Beatles. And he was brought over primarily by Alan Klein, who he'd known from the New York days and who by this point was, was running Apple in London. And Alan Klein, uh, among the, the many things that he inherits from the Beatles, is this big jumble of tapes, which subsequently became the Let It Be album which George Martin had had a go at, uh, at trying to com 
bring to fruition as an album. Glyn Johns had had a go. Nobody had been able to really sort of pull it together. So Alan Klein uh, invites Spectre over. And, of course, the Beatles are thrilled by this, or at least some of the Beatles are thrilled by this. So Spectre comes over to finish Let It Be, and at the same time he works with John Lennon on solo work and George Harrison with solo work. And out of this comes the idea of, of re-releasing, revitalising the Christmas album. And this is when it becomes known as Phil Spector's Christmas album. It assumes this sort of a generic title. And suddenly it's, it's, it's a cult classic. It's a success. It's a, it, I mean, it's not a hit in the, in the conventional sense of the term, but it seems from that moment on that Christmas isn't quite Christmas without the Phil Spector Christmas album being played on the radio here, there and everywhere. And it's extraordinary. One can see this oneself. You go into people's houses, you go to Christmas parties or whatever, and it's just there. It's become as much a part of the of the background of, of our collective Christmases as, uh, as mistletoe and, and holly. Santa Claus is coming to town, The Crystals, with 15-year-old Lala Brooks on lead vocals. But what about the album that track comes from? Do you have the original cover, the Phillies artists bursting out of oversized Christmas gift boxes? Or do you have the 1970s reissue cover, Phil Spector, dressed as Santa Claus, peering out over his shades, back to mono badge pinned proudly in the middle of his Father Christmas beard? Whichever it is, a Christmas gift for you, or Phil Spector's Christmas album, its 13 tracks of Christmas magic have had a huge influence on all the seasonal releases that followed in its considerable wake. By the 1970s, its legacy was already apparent. Mick Brown. The legendary status of Spectre is beginning to grow by now. A new generation of artists are beginning to pay attention and to listen very carefully to what he did. In Britain, we have Roy Wood and Roy Wood does his own Christmas record, which is very much a, a steal from, or a tribute to, if you like, to Phil Spector. A little later on, we have the emergence of Bruce Springsteen. And uh, if Springsteen's Born to Run isn't the ultimate homage to the Phil Spector sound, I don't know what is. And so it's very interesting to sort of to follow the trajectory of, of Spector's career, really. How his own work, while his own work may not have been enjoying, you know, as much success as he, as he did in the in, in the early and mid '60s, which are really his sort of heyday in many ways. Certainly, his reputation begins to grow. And as for that Bruce Springsteen connection, Hal Blaine is quick to back that up. Max Weinberg, his drummer, used to tell me when they were doing sessions, Bruce would turn around and kind of roll his hands at him and say, "Hal Blaine, Hal Blaine," which was quite a feather in my cap. <laughs>
Three Christmas songs, all owing a great deal to the Phil Spector wall of sound. Just there, Happy Christmas War is Over from John and Yoko with the Plastic Ono Band. Ahead of that's Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. And starting out that threesome, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band's 1975 version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town, based wholly on the 1963 Crystals track from A Christmas Gift for You. And don't forget, John and Yoko's Christmas Standard is also a Phil Spector production. That's quite a seasonal influence. There's no denying the legacy of the Wall of Sound, but what about Phil Spector the individual? Obviously, his personal reputation's forever tarnished by his murder conviction in 2009, but how was he outside of the studio, as a friend? Hal Blaine. Comedy was a big part of my life and a big part of Phil's life. And after he moved into the, the, the final castle, we used to be up there, he would get me in for comedy relief. And here he was with, you know, all of these giants of various industries and all of their monies and all of their Rolls Royces, etc., etc. And here this lowly little drummer would be telling funny stories. But Phil was a wonderful, wonderful man that way. He was very simpatico when you were around him. I remember when I received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Los Angeles Magazine, and Phil came to the party that night. And this was just a few days, or a couple of weeks probably, after the unfortunate murder. And we all knew it was a murder. It was unintentional, but it was in fact a murder. And Phil came to that party just to say hello. He turned me upside down almost, I was sitting. And he kissed me flat on the, on the lips. I mean, very few people would do that unless you were good buddies. And I felt that I really was a good buddy. He asked my daughter to marry him because she was his secretary. The point was he wanted to marry her because she would not be able to testify against him. Drummer, friend and potential father-in-law Hal Blaine on the extraordinary contradiction that was Phil Spector. Of course, Phil is still with us, incarcerated though he may be, in the California state prison system. Not eligible for parole until 2028, when he would be 88 years old. Despite his spell behind bars, his art remains seemingly untarnished. Mick Brown. Personally, I would have thought that that would have effectively destroyed Spectre's reputation as a producer. That from here on in, he will forever be remembered as Phil Spectre, the man who might or might not have shot dead an actress in, in the hallway of his castle. And yet, in many ways, the opposite seems to be happening. Hardly a day goes by without a new band, a new artist, name-checking Phil Spectre, palpably borrowing from Phil Spector. But what is Mark Ronson if not a one-man tribute act to Phil Spector? Where would Amy Winehouse be without the Ronettes, you know? <laughs> It is an extraordinary thing that 50 years after his greatest peak, and I think we can date the, the Christmas album and, and effectively say this is the moment of Phil Spector's greatest peak, that all these years on, that Spector should still be respected, should still be revered, and should still be seen as one of, if not the most important pop music producer ever. Not only did he make sure that he had his name on the front of the <laughs> on the front of the sleeve actually when you came to play the record the last track a very um schmaltzy sickly treacly sentimental version of silent night there is phil Spector uttering this deathless soliloquy 
about how appreciative he is of the support of his fans and how pleased all the artists are to be making music for them and so forth. And uh, in typical Spectre fashion, it seems that the original uh, recording of this was something like six or seven minutes long. He had to be almost sort of dragged away from the microphone you know, in order to shut him up uh, and then prevailed upon to cut it back to the, the small introduction to the song which it actually, which it actually forms. Hello, this is Phil Spector. It is so difficult at this time to say words that would express my feelings about the album to which you have just listened. An album that has been in the planning for many, many months. Phil Spector and artists with the mawkish opening to the version of Silent Night that appears on A Christmas Gift for You. And just in case you're in any doubt as to the continued relevance of the Phil Spector Christmas album, check out this year's Asda Christmas TV ad. The seasonal images backed by Darlene Love's Christmas Baby Please Come Home. Thanks once again to my guests, Wrecking Crew drummer Hal Blaine, guitarist Carol Kay, and Phil Spector biographer Mick Brown, alongside record producer Steve Levine. Conceived by Steve and myself, Richard Allenson, this magnum opus production was written and produced by Louis Borges Cardona. Catch you next time, and I'll leave the last word to the record producer who conjured up his little symphonies for the kids. I'm not exactly sure how Phil Spector will be spending this Christmas, uncomfortably, I'd imagine. But whatever the future holds for him, no one can deny his legacy. 55 years ago, over six August weeks, in a sweltering Los Angeles studio, he wrapped up a Christmas gift the rest of us had been enjoying ever since. Inside was an album designed to give us all a happy Christmas. Thanks, Phil. May we wish you the very merriest of Christmases and the happiest of New Years. And thank you so very much for letting us spend this Christmas with you.